Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. Good evening, listener. You're listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. On tonight's program, we invite you to leave behind your safe reality and descend with us into the frightening depths of the most terrifying imaginations with audio adaptations of two rounds of frightening fiction about possessed partners and wretched recordings. And I'm excited to say that both of tonight's tales are Chilling Tales exclusives, debuting here with us, meaning you won't have heard them anywhere else. I'm Jason Hill, host of the Horror Hill podcast now in its fourth season, available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcast, and wherever podcasts can be found. If you can't get enough of the macabre, look me up too and subscribe for more horror than you can handle each and every month. Tonight, I'll be filling in as host on behalf of my friend, Steve Taylor. In the meantime, I'll be your guide as we traverse the dimly lit corridors of your darkest dreams. Joining us tonight to help bring to life the frightening fiction of Micah Edwards and Josh Morelli are voice talents Olivia Steele, Jordan Lester, and Jesse Cornett. Now, get your ticket ready. Take your seat in our theater of the minds. Embrace yourself. It's time to turn off the lights and turn on the dark. 
Our first tale tonight comes to us from author Micah Edwards and is performed by Olivia Steele and Jordan Lester. And not only that, but it was written with the help of a Chilling Tales superfan by the name of Fiona, perhaps better known by her YouTube screen name, Pimposa, whom we invited to collaborate with us this past month. The story you're about to hear truly would not exist if it weren't for Fiona, and we thank her for her amazing writing prompts and for the opportunity to help bring her vision to life tonight, not to mention all of her support over on our channel. In the tale, we'll meet a young couple on vacation in honor of their first anniversary. They noticed imperfections in the cottage they're staying in and set out to find more history about the place. But, ghosts of the past soon turn their week-long getaway into a thing of nightmares as they fall prey to a supernatural loop in time. Without further ado, I present to you the house with the spotted walls. Kara and Lacey were young and in love, and they were also relatively broke, which tended to go along with being young. But their one-year anniversary was coming up, and both of them wanted to do something special to recognize a year of being together. Let's start a garden, suggested Lacey. I thought we wanted to celebrate, not punish ourselves with hard labor, Kara complained. Let's go on vacation. We can't afford a vacation. We can't afford a garden either. You need tools, gloves, seeds, special dirt. I think the regular dirt we have will do fine. Giant unflattering hats, gallons of sunscreen, twee little woven baskets to put the produce in. Okay, enough laughed Lacey, throwing up her hands. We'll take a vacation, but I'm starting a garden when I get back, and I hope you'll help. Unflattering hats, here I come, said Kara, already pulling up weekend getaway ideas on her phone. Their limited budget made the process much more streamlined than it otherwise would have been. Big city vacations, tropical getaways, and popular tour spots were out. Anything that required air travel to get to was out. Anything deep in the woods was out, although when Lacey pointed out that some of the cabins rented for very reasonable rates, Kara admitted that she just didn't want to spend a week going on nature walks. If we go somewhere and then just sit around on our phones like we do here, we might as well not go anywhere at all, Lacey said. But I like sitting around, said Kara. Tell you what, how about a beach rental as a compromise? How is that a compromise? asked Lacey. Beaches are all about just sitting around. Yes, but we can do it outside, like you want. Kara replied. See? Compromise. Lacey huffed, and Kara continued. Come on, we'll find some cute little town with quaint shops to go poke around in. We'll meet the locals and pay in seashells and eat nothing but fish every day. I don't think that's how things work. Well, you could be right. Let's get a beach rental and find out. An evening of searching and a bit of good-natured bickering later, the young couple had booked a week-long stay at a charming little cottage in a seaside town called Shoreham-by-Sea. It was quaint, it was two hours away by car, and it was above all, affordable. We can pick up food at the local shops and have meals in to save a bit more money, Lacey said. Kara rolled her eyes. 
Yes, and you can start a garden in the back and catch fish to supplement that. How will I have time to fish if I'm starting a garden? You'll have to do something to help out. We'll never make it to our second anniversary if I'm doing all the work. I'll be slaving away in the kitchen. Don't discount my labor just because it's indoors. You'd be eating raw fish if it weren't for me. And you'd be eating nothing at all. Not true. I'd be happily spending all of my money eating out at the pubs. You're hopeless. You love me this way. A few weeks later, Kara and Lacey were unloading their bags from the car, their eyes shining with delight. The cottage was exactly as cute as it had appeared in the picture. A perfect, cozy little getaway. The town had looked idyllic when they'd driven through it, and they could see the beach just over a small hill. Ah, I love the smell of the sea, Kara declared, inhaling deeply. I can't wait to sit in a chair on that beach and just relax and do nothing. Bags in first, relaxing later, Lacey ordered. We have shopping to do tonight, too. Unless your plan of doing nothing includes not eating. Ugh, fine. Why don't we have people to do this for us? Because we weren't born rich and we haven't unearthed a fantastic treasure. Come on, bags up, let's go. The interior of the house was as neat and well-maintained as the exterior. Kara and Lacey moved from room to room, delighted by the homey feel and rustic aesthetic. Everything was nearly perfect, but something odd caught Lacey's attention. What's with the walls? She asked. Kara looked at them quizzically. They seem fine to me. No, look, they've got blotches all over them. I think that's just dappling from the sunlight. It isn't. Look, come here. Lacey took Kara by the hand and led her over to the nearest wall, stopping only when their toes were touching it. See? That's not the light. There's something on the wall. From this distance, it was clear that Lacey was correct. Although the wall looked to have been recently painted, it was stained with irregular, roughly spherical blotches that the paint had been unable to fully hide. Each one had barely visible lines dripping down from it. There was no rhyme or reason to the placement, and no two seemed to have quite the same shape. Huh. It doesn't look like a pattern. I wonder what did this. Kara tapped the nearest spot, but it felt no different from the rest of the wall. Don't touch it, Lacey chided. Why not? Well, you just said you don't know what it is. Yeah, but I know it's not dangerous. It's a wall. What, do you think it's poisonous? Well, I don't know, do I? It could be anything. Something sure splattered all over this wall. Something that bled through the paint job. Bled, you say? Ooh, maybe it was a murder. A grisly murder. A lady was killed here. By a savage beast. Stop it, warned Lacey. Kara continued, grinning. And as she fell, it ripped out big handfuls of her flesh and flung them against the wall. Splat! 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 She advanced on Lacey, her hands held out in grasping claws. Lacey backed away into the next room, laughing as she swatted her hands away. <laughs> Stop it, I said. There's something very wrong with you. Kara followed. Now that they were looking for it, it was immediately obvious that the walls in this room had the same spots as the other. Even the ceiling had an occasional mark. Another murder! A whole family was torn apart. This room was the sun. Splat! Splat! 
Okay, I'm going to buy food and look at the shops, Lacey said. You can come with me, or you can stay here saying splat to the walls. Compromise. I could come with you and say splat to you. No compromise. Splat stays in the house. Okay, but when we get back, I have the rest of the family to describe to you. There are still three other rooms. Mm, any chance you could not? No chance. No compromise. Splat stays in the house, but that means that when we are in the house, there is splat. Splat! I'm outside, said Lacey, retreating through the front door. Splat! Whispered Kara and joined her. The walk to town was wonderful. The day was warm, the breeze was lovely, and the air was pleasantly briny. The town itself was everything they had hoped for, with interesting little shops and friendly people going about their business. Kara and Lacey walked along hand in hand, enjoying the shops, the sea, and each other's company. They capped the day, stopping off for a drink before heading home. The publican greeted them with a smile and poured their beers. Enjoying your visit to our fair town? he asked. It's perfect, Kara replied. I'm sure we'll be seeing more of you. We're here all week. Oh, where are you staying? A little ways out of town, in that little blue house on the beach. Huh, the old Reynolds house? Hmm, someone must have made a mistake. What's that supposed to mean? Kara bristled. The publican hastened to calm her down. A mistake on the calendar, I mean. This week's the spring tide. Usually they leave the house empty, just in case Reynolds comes back. His ghost, I mean. He laughed. <laughs> Superstition, of course. And I'm sure you'll have a lovely weekend. All the same, if he does show, I'd recommend leaving the property to him. Not a fan of old Reynolds, I gather. Kara asked. Oh, he was a terror to us when I was a boy. Constantly screaming at us to get off his property, threatening us with his cane. Complained to our parents any chance he got for all the good it did him. Ketchup didn't have too many friends in this town. Ketchup? Kara asked. His name was Ketchup? Well, probably not, but I never knew the right of it. It was Mr. Reynolds when any adult was listening, and Ketchup when they weren't. Why did you call him Ketchup? Lacey chimed in. The publican smiled, reminiscing. Reynolds had a woman. Madge, her name was. He must have been twice her age, and unpleasant as a cornered bear. But he was rich, and I suppose that was enough for her. I imagine they must have gotten along sometimes, but there were certainly plenty of times that they didn't. And when they didn't, she'd throw tomatoes. Tomatoes? Oh, absolutely. She'd pelt him with them. Old Reynolds loved to be neat and tidy. He liked everything in its place. There's not much less tidy than an overly ripe tomato exploding all over a wall. Juice dripping down, tiny seeds everywhere, pulp ruining the paint. And the walls weren't the half of it. She'd hit him directly. That was why Ketchup was so often yelling at us to get off his property. We'd sneak up there on laundry days to see his shirts all hung out on the line, splattered with faint pink stains where the bleach couldn't get the tomatoes out. Splat, whispered Kara. Lacey nudged her with her foot. So that's why we call him Ketchup, the publican concluded. He shook his head. Tough old fellow. If it hadn't been for what happened, 
I wouldn't be surprised if he'd still be here today. What happened? Did Madge get him with a tomato? He favored Kara with a broad grin. It was Madge, all right, but not with any tomato. She got him in the heart. They must have had a fight one day that couldn't be resolved with vegetables, and she left him. Stayed gone for weeks while he ordered her to come back. When finally he saw that wasn't going to work, he asked her please, and finally she relented and agreed to come back to talk. Only the more Ketchup thought about it, the matter he got that she'd made him beg for something that should have been rightfully his. He needed a plan to put her in her place, and so he came up with a good one. He wrote her a note, a real spiteful one, saying how he couldn't live with her and was going down to the pier to drown himself at high tide. He timed it so she'd be getting there right as he was heading into the water. He couldn't wait to see her running down the beach after him, looking a fool as she plunged into the water fully clothed to beg him to come back to shore. Then she'd see who was important to who. Then she'd understand her place. So what happened? Kara asked. Did she not make it in time? Well, the currents around here can get a little tricky. Old Ketchup took a nice slow walk out so Madge could catch him, but when she wasn't there right when he expected, he just kept on going, a step at a time. By the time he thought to turn back, the current had him. Folks on the beach saw him shout and wave, and a few rushed out to help, but he was swept away before they could get to him, and the next anyone saw of him was when his body washed up. And as for Madge... Well, she never turned up at all that day. So I guess she knew better than Reynolds what her place was after all. Kara let out a long breath. Quite a story. Oh, if you like, you'll love this one. The publican leaned in, lowering his voice. Ketchup was rich, as I said. But after he died, no one could ever find his money. They searched that house high and low, but not a cent of it ever turned up. Could be it's still somewhere in that house. They even say that sometimes the springtide carries in old Reynolds' ghosts. That's why I was surprised to hear they let you two stay there this week. He's been seen in the old house on a full moon, walking the halls again, counting his fortune. What do you think, Lacey? Kara asked, eyes gleaming. Think he'll lead us to it? Can't say as how I'd recommend following him cautioned the publican. Old Ketchup never let go of a penny he didn't have to, and I can't imagine death has eased him any. If we see a ghost, I promise you we'll head right out the front door, said Lacey. Right, Kara? Hmm? Oh, yeah, sure. But Kara's eyes still glinted with thoughts of gold. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. 
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The rest of the week went by in a happy blur of walking on the beach, exploring the town, and just generally letting the days fill up with nothing in particular. It was relaxing, sedentary, and uneventful. On their last night in the house, the night of the spring tide and the full moon, Kara was awakened in the early hours by an urgent whisper from Lacey. Someone's in the house! Kara's eyes flew open. She immediately saw what had caught Lacey's attention. Visible through the open bedroom door was a soft blue light moving steadily back and forth. It looked like a person pacing. It was definitely coming inside the house. What do we do, Kara? Stay here, she told Lacey. I'll take care of it. I'm not letting you go out there alone. They both slipped out of bed, wincing at the creaks from the springs and the slight thump their feet made on the floor. The pacing of the light never slowed, though, and after a moment, the two women concluded that they had not been heard. They began to inch slowly toward the door. Lacey, Kara whispered her voice barely audible. She tugged on the sleeve of Lacey's pajamas. Look at the wall. Lacey squinted, then let out an involuntary gasp as she saw what Kara had noticed. All along the wall, beneath the paint that had never managed to fully cover them up, the tomato stains were starting to glow very slightly. Warm red light seeped forth into the room, washing everything with the faintest tint of blood. Unsure what else to do, they crept forward again. Kara was the first to reach the door. She peered cautiously around the frame. For a moment, she only stared, then began flailing desperately backward with one hand. She caught Lacey by the shirt and pulled her forward to see as well. In the living room, a translucent humanoid figure walked back and forth. It ran its glowing hands along the shelves, and knelt to peer under the furniture. It was clearly looking for something, and equally as clearly not finding it. It did not seem to have noticed the two women at all. They watched for several minutes as it moved back and forth, investigating the room. Eventually, it abandoned its search, retreated to a corner of the room, and sank into the floor, melting away into the rug. The blue light disappeared with it, leaving only the dim red of the memories of tomatoes. Lacey exhaled in relief. Oh, he's gone. Let's get... She took Kara's hand, intending to pull her to the front door, but Kara tugged away and instead crossed to where the ghost had vanished. She flipped up the corner of the rug to reveal a wooden hatch with a large metal ring set into it. Seizing the ring, she began to pull. What are you doing?! Lacey whispered harshly. We have to get out of here! No way! Kara whispered back. The hatch creaked upward. Blue light spilled out from the space below. I'm going after the treasure! Are you crazy? Kara gave no answer, her attention fixed on trying to open the hatch quietly. Despite her efforts, it hit the floor with a dull, reverberating boom. The light below did not waver, however. The specter appeared totally unaware of their presence. 
Come on, she hissed, slipping down the wooden stairs beneath the hatch. Lacey hesitated, eyeing the front door sadly. If anything happened to Kara, though, she knew she'd never forgive herself. Reluctantly, she followed Kara down the wooden steps. The air in the basement smelled somehow more of brine than the upstairs had. The floor was hard-packed earth. The walls were white plaster, marred with the ever-present residue of tomatoes. These stains had never been painted over at all, and they glowed fiercely enough to light the entire basement. Mixed with the blue light shining from the specter, it cast everything in bruised, purplish tones. The spirit was already halfway across the basement, moving toward a shelf stacked high with metal cans and glass jars. It stepped through the middle of it, and for a moment its light was visible, shining through the preserves until it winked out again. The women were left with only the ominous red glow from the walls to see by. Let me at least go get a light, said Lacey. There's no time. We've got to follow him. Help me move this shelf. Against her better judgment, Lacey followed Kara deeper into the basement. The shelf was heavy and disinclined to move from its spot on the floor. But after a lot of grunting and shoving, they managed to move one corner a few feet away from the wall. Behind it was a tiny alcove, about three feet on a side. Inside that was nothing whatsoever. There has to be something... Kara said, disappointed. She rapped on the walls, but each sounded solid. What was the point of- Ah! The floor of the alcove had a hollow resonance. Kara motioned for Lacey to help, and together they felt around in the tiny space, eventually figuring out a way to slide the floor free. It was a wooden square cleverly painted to match the earthen floor, and in the hole it left behind, a faint blue light was visible. You can't possibly- Lacey began, but Kara was already sliding her legs into the hole, her torso disappearing immediately after. Kara? Kara, can we please just go? I really don't want to be here. There was no answer. Lacey sighed and eased herself gingerly through the narrow gap. She stepped down into cold water. From what little she could see by the distant blue light, she was in some sort of natural stone corridor a little under five feet high. Water covered the floor to about ankle depth. Kara was already splashing along after the light, determined to catch it. Lacey felt she had no choice but to go after her. They rounded a corner together in time to see the spirit turning back toward them. They shrank against the wall, but it passed by without acknowledging them at all. It was heading back toward the entrance to the sub-basement. Quick, before the light's gone! Kara said. I saw it reaching up for something. Help me look. It only took seconds to discover what they sought. A rusted metal box hidden in a small cleft in the rock. Kara had just enough time to see that it was closed with a heavy lock before the last of the light faded from around the corner. Come on, we have to get back, Lacey said, and at last Kara did not argue. They hurried down the hallway, heads hunched down, hands trailing on the walls. The water was rising with the encroaching tide and was now lapping at their shins, soaking the bottoms of their pajama pants and slowing their steps. Blue and red lights beckoned them from the square set into the ceiling at the end. They hastened toward it, afraid that at any moment the spectral lights would cease, 
and they would be left in the dark. Kara climbed awkwardly up the ladder, using only one arm while the other cradled the box against her body. She wriggled through the small opening and back into the basement, but stopped halfway for no reason Lacey could see. You okay? she asked. Kara did not answer. Lacey moved a step forward, preparing to ask again. Kara's foot lashed out behind her, the heel catching Lacey right on the point of the chin. She cried out and fell over, splashing down into the shallow water. She looked up, hurt and confused, to see Kara, now fully out of the sub-basement, staring back down into the hole with a cruel expression and glowing blue eyes. Thanks for retrieving my treasure. Reynolds hissed with Kara's voice. All these years, I had no one to pick up the box. But just the same, I don't think I'll be sharing it. Lacey scrambled to regain her feet, but with a laugh, Kara slid the wooden tile back into place, plunging her into darkness. Lacey heard the heavy scraping of the shelf being dragged ponderously back into place, and she knew, even before she tried to reopen the exit, that it would be futile. She pounded on the wooden plank, but only succeeded in sending echoes rolling around her narrow confines. The tunnel was utterly black. The chilly ocean water was up to her knees and rising fast. Desperately, Lacey tugged at the panel, trapping her inside, but it refused to give. She wondered how long she had left to live before she drowned. There didn't seem to be much else to do but wait for it to happen. Then something caught her eye. A faint glimmer of red light. From the edge of the panel, leaking down into the tunnel through invisible cracks at the edges, thin lines of luminescent red slowly dripped down. Lacey moved back, stepping down into the cold water. The lines tracked her movement, angling toward her. The water gradually rose past her waist. It showed no signs of stopping. With nothing left to lose, Lacey reached out and hesitantly touched the red lines making their way toward her. In the basement, Reynolds, still in possession of Kara's body, had found a hammer and chisel and was attempting to break the rusted lock off the metal box. He swore as each successive blow failed to crack open his prize. Stupid, weak body! He grunted in time with each strike. He looked down at Kara's form in disgust. Thought she could steal my treasure, but can't even open it. If I had anything to work with here, any sort of real muscle or ability, then maybe... His rant was cut short, as the shelf blocking the hidden entrance exploded outward in a spray of splintered wood, shattered glass, and preserved food. Thick green vines crawled over the wreckage for an instant, writhing blindly like severed tentacles before dissipating. Lacey rose out of the sub-basement, buoyed upward by more ethereal vines. Her eyes glowed a fierce red, and when she spoke, her voice was not her own. Reynolds, you have no right here anymore. I have every right, Madge. Reynolds spat. My house, my money, my right. Their bodies, Reynolds. Their lives. Pah! Two stupid women come onto my property and... He broke off as Madge reached out, placing Lacey's hand against the plaster wall. A red spot glowed brighter beneath her palm, 
bulging outward to take on a full, round shape. Don't you dare, Madge, Reynolds cautioned. He raised the hammer threateningly. Don't even think about it. Or what, Reynolds? Madge took her hand away from the wall. In it, she now held the ghost of a tomato, drawn forth from where it had once hit long ago. She tossed it up lightly, catching it again. We both know which of us always came out on top in the fights. Not this time! He snarled, hurling the hammer. It flipped through the air, but a vine shot out of Lacey's pajama sleeve and swatted it away. Yes, this time, Madge declared. This time, and every time. She threw the tomato. Reynolds held up the rusted metal box to block it, but even as the first one hit, Madge was pulling another from the wall. You don't belong here, Reynolds. Splat. You've taken what doesn't belong to you. Splat. You're a hateful. Splat. Old. Splat. Man. Splat. Reynolds was driven backward a step at a time, back up the stairs and into the main house. The metal box cracked under the relentless assault, and still the blows came. Tomato juice cascaded from Kara's hair, running in rivulets across her face and down the neck of her pajamas. As more and more tomatoes hit, the blue light in her eyes began to fade. Still, Reynolds struggled for control. On his knees in the kitchen, he sneered up at Madge, looming over him. You'd never have beaten me if I'd had a better body than this... this... woman. He spat. Madge laughed. <laughs> you never won when you were alive, and you were a man then. Why would this be any different? She leaned down, crushing the phantom tomato in her fist. Its juices gushed out, spraying into Kara's eyes, nose, and mouth. She coughed, sputtered, and spat, flailing. She wiped the mess from her face to reveal her normal, albeit very confused, eyes. Lacey? She asked. What? When did we get to the kitchen? I have no idea, said Lacey. Her eyes, too, had returned to normal. There were no signs of vines around her. The walls, though still spotted, no longer glowed. You trapped me in the sub-basement, and then... She shrugged helplessly. I what? Lacey, I would never... Okay, what am I covered in? She demanded. Lacey, still dripping with salt water, bent closer. Tomatoes? Kara stared for a minute, then started to laugh. <laughs> did Madge save us? <laughs> I think she did, Lacey agreed. She too began to chuckle. In moments, the two were sitting on the floor, leaning on each other for support as they laughed hysterically, venting more emotions than they could name. Their laughter ebbed after a time. They simply held each other, saying nothing. Kara broke the silence. Want to see what's in the box? She held up the rusted metal hunk, displaying the broken hinges. Kara, I don't know if we should. Come on, I think we've earned it. Let's see old man Reynolds' treasure. So saying, she wedged her fingers into the crack and pulled the box apart. Rusty metal squealed. The top pulled free. 
Hundreds of small rectangles fluttered free, sliding through the gap to land in the laps of the women. Lacey picked one up. It was a paper packet, folded shut and sealed with a light film of wax. The front bore two simple words, globe tomatoes. They're seed packets, she said. Kara frowned. Reynolds' fortune was tomato seeds? Lacey started to laugh again. (laughs) No, she said. Madge found it after all. This was her last dig at him. She replaced his fortune with tomatoes? And then they were both laughing again. It felt cleaner this time, healthier. When they were done, they both felt relieved. This works out pretty well, actually, said Lacey. Better than being rich? Well, no. But it looks like we're going to be able to start that garden. Ah, good, said Kara. One of the shops in town had the most wonderful, unflattering hat. I hope you enjoyed The House with the Spotted Walls. Written by Micah Edwards, as based on prompts provided by Chilling Tales for Dark Knight's fan, Fiona, a.k.a. Pimposa, and brought to life by Olivia Steele and Jordan Lester. If you dig Micah Edwards' work, simply search for him on Amazon, where you'll find his many books for print, including his fantastic novel, Y'all Has Read. Or visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash edwards, spelled E-D-W-A-R-D-S, and you'll be redirected to his author page on Amazon, where, by clicking through via that link, a small portion of your purchase goes to us here at Chilling Tales, where we are proud Amazon affiliates to help make this show possible. You can also find more of Micah's work at our horror fiction website, creepypastastories.com, so check him out there, too when you have a moment, for some totally free frights. In Micah's novel, Y'all Has Read, you travel to Rosen's Hollow, a once thriving silver mining town that's as dried up as the mines themselves. Only a handful of souls remain in the town, lost and hopeless. Deke Dombacher, a newcomer to Rosen's Hollow, aims to change that attitude. He's got designs on the mines, and a plan to bring life back to the hollow by hook or by crook. But the mines have a few plans for bringing back life of their own. So do not delay. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash edwards and pick up your copy of Y'all Has Read today and let Micah know that Jason Hill and Chilling Tales for Dark Nights sent you. It would mean a lot to me. As for voice actresses Olivia Steele and Jordan Lester, more of their work can be found on the official Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel. Olivia Steele also has her own YouTube channel, Scarily Olivia. Be sure to check her out when you can. I assure you, you will not be disappointed. Up next, we've got a second sinister story for you, as written by Josh Morelli and performed by longtime Chilling Tales alum, Jesse Cornett. In it, we'll be introduced to a man waking up in unfamiliar surroundings. 
He seems to have found himself in a torture chamber of sorts, with only a stranger's voice and cryptic messages to depend on for help and survival. Now, without further ado, I present to you The Anima Project. I awake in the darkness, and where I might have otherwise thought myself blind, there's a thin shaft of light piercing the solid curtain of black around me. The light is reflected through a rounded patch of glass above my head, matched with the darkness. This tells me I must be within a confined space. I'm lying on my back, and I notice that my limbs feel a peculiar resistance when I try to move them, as if I were underwater. I can breathe, but it doesn't feel natural, and as I force my stiff right arm through the substance surrounding me, I touch my mouth. A large tube protrudes from my throat, and I nearly jerk it free out of pure instinct until the rational part of my brain reminds me that I am still submerged. Instead, I reach above me, toward the light. I feel the roof of my container and push. It takes effort, but it gives, and I slowly push it aside. Once freedom is within sight, I rip the tubing from my mouth and I lift myself. As my head breaks the surface, I take my first gasp of proper air and crawl out of my cage. Rubbing it with my fingertips, I can tell now that what I've been sleeping in is not liquid at all. It feels like some kind of gel. As my eyes fully adjust, I can see the faintest of dust particles fluttering around the section of floor where I sit. The ground is hard, something like cracked linoleum, and I see what looks to be mounds of rock piled around the room. Rising to my knees, a pain like pins and needles shoots through my extremities as life creeps into them. My mind feels empty, my thoughts covered in cobwebs. So many questions plague me, not the least of which is why my limbs feel this way at all. I look at the rough, calloused hands in front of me, turning a reddish pink as blood starts coursing through them again. I squeeze my right fingers into a fist, flex them open again, raise my left hand, and touch my face. Hesitantly, I press it to each of my features. Nose, mouth, hair, ears. Everything is there. But it all feels wrong. I can't remember anything how I came to be in this place where I had been before. Even my own name eludes me. Something is odd about the attire I woke in as well. A suit of some kind, seemingly crafted from stitched nylon fibers, with small lines running over it that track along my biceps. The way I recognize things, like the suit's material, it's as if certain sights and sounds are igniting vague sensations. Like deja vu inside my head. 
If these observations are tapping into some unconscious memories, it would explain why I seem to know things about my situation instinctively. Like the way I know this room is deep underground, or how I comprehend the fundamentals of my suit and know that it tracks its wearer's health and bodily functions. I somehow know these things. Every motion, every small interaction between flesh and fiber. Every action I've taken feels familiar. Without warning, while lost in my contemplation, I feel a strange kind of vibration begin to emerge from the plating on the upper torso. It seems to buzz along my chest until I hear an audible click. And then I watch as red numbers appear right above my heart. They look digital, like an alarm clock, and flash four zeros for a moment before they change. I'm looking at it upside down, but it is still apparent even from that angle what it means. The numbers read 60 with zero seconds for what I'm guessing was precisely one second before they change to 59, 59, and then 59, 58, etc. It doesn't take a genius to see that this is functioning as a stopwatch and that it's counting down one hour though for what reason, I can't possibly fathom. The light helps to illuminate my surroundings a little, and I decide to place this unknown element in the back of my mind while I explore the here and now. The room is large, and I decide to investigate the closest thing I can see first, which is one of the enormous mounds I had spotted when I awoke. As I approach it, Something assaults my senses, a smell sickeningly putrid that nearly brings me to my knees and makes my eyes water. Every bone in my body is screaming at me to turn back, to avoid this sight and explore elsewhere. But curiosity overwhelms good sense. So I cover my nose with one hand and continue, though I would soon profoundly regret this decision. As I approach, I can see things sticking out of the pile at strange and jagged angles, the smell ever worsening. I finally come close enough for my suit's lighting to expose what makes up this horrendous thing. Corpses surrounded me. What must be close to are more than a hundred of them, all lying in various stages of decomposition. The odd things I had seen jutting out at strange positions from the piles were limbs, hands, feet, all green with decay, some even skeletal. What I initially had thought were more dust particles from afar turned out to be flies hovering and gorging themselves on the copious amounts of flesh seemingly stored here just for them. I froze for a moment at the sight, the pure horror of it overwhelming me before taking a step backward and then fleeing back to the spot I had awoken. As I reached my destination, a sudden horrible thought occurred to me. Many more piles I could see throughout this room that I had first mistaken for rock mounds as well. 
If all these piles were the same, that would mean there were possibly thousands of bodies in here with me. I sit in silence, trying to recuperate, to calm myself. Something has shifted in my mind. However, I have come to be here, whoever I had been before. All of these things are now less important to me than getting out of this place. Raising the light from my arm over a spot beneath me, I can see that a trail is visible. It seems to stretch on from the side I awoke deep into the unseen blanket of darkness ahead. It doesn't matter. I have to escape this hellish nightmare. So I break from my contemplative silence and begin my descent into that bleak unknown. The path continues about 200 feet to the other end of the room, stopping at the threshold of a doorway. The door itself is firmly shut, though as I lift my forearm to shine as much light as I can to inspect it, I notice that there are words inscribed upon the center of its frame. They are underlined and written in large, bold font. Veritas est anima mea. The phrase feels familiar, though I can't recall its meaning. I shine my meager light from side to side. The door looks to open from left to right, with a keypad attached to the wall on one side. I can make out jagged lines of indentation along the face of the metal, as if it had been hit repeatedly with something of equal density. A glint catches my eye as I stare at the marks off to the side, about 15 feet from the door. I can see something off in the shadows. I briefly hesitate, and then quickly walk off the path to see what it is. And as I near it, I see the flash again. I reach down and grope around until I feel something on the floor, and lift it. I can see now. It's a tool of some kind, about three feet long and made of metal, similar to the door. One end houses a rounded, blunt edge that seems to have a crack along it, and the other has a hexagonal shape with three intersecting lines that form to create a tip at the end. Each side of the hexagonal end is highly reflective and is obviously what caught the light from my suit. Its intended purpose eludes me, but from its mild aesthetic damage and the look of the nearby door, I can guess what its recent makeshift use was. Looking the thing over once more, I place it back on the ground and head over to the door. Though the item itself held no clues to explain my situation, what it did do was instill a dawning sense of hope inside me. If the tool was recently used to inflict those dents on the door, then I suppose it stands to reason that whoever was using it was recently here as well. I look back towards the door with a new enthusiasm at the thought of finding a fellow captive. This time, I thoroughly inspect the pad along the side and notice something I hadn't before. There is a keypad, but above it is a flat screen with five distinct dots aligned on it. Four of these dots are spaced about half an inch apart, 
with the third spaced a little more than an inch. Each dot has a line that stretches beneath it about four or five inches and stops at a curved angle that creates a circle. Looking at the spacing of the dots and the relative width and height of the pad itself, it takes me only a few minutes before I think to try something. I place my right hand on it, making sure to align my fingers with the outline of the dots. At first, nothing. But just as my excitement starts to wane, it quickly reignites as the pad suddenly bursts to life. Each dot flares with a bright neon green that then flows down the lines and loops around the circle of my palm. And as the light finishes its trajectory, a loud chime blares from some unseen speaker. Suddenly, I can hear a mechanism whirl as the door easily folds in upon itself and shelters in the crevice on its right side. I cautiously approach the threshold of the now-open door. So many questions still haunting my thoughts. Who were all these people I had been entombed with? And if others had come before me, why had they not woken me up? I suppose that none of these questions will ever be answered if I continued my inaction, and so with a deep breath, I step over the threshold and continue forward. I don't get far. However, the moment my entire body is across, something ignites and noise starts spreading all around me. There is a blinding flash, and then I am bathed in red light faster than I can react to. A long synthetic arm appears from the wall to my side and grips my left wrist. Before I even see it, I feel it tug my arm straight and with terrifying efficiency. It emits a searing line of heat from some utensil attached to it. White, hot, blinding pain courses through my body. So intense, my vision goes black for a fraction of an instant. Then with ferocious animal instinct, I react before my mind can process any of it. I turn and reach for the mechanical device, ready to tear it from the wall. But I am too slow. It releases my wrist and quickly disappears as my right hand swings uselessly at the air where it had been. Enraged, I scream and kick the wall where it had re-entered before eventually caving to the pain. I hold my left arm and sink to the floor, slowly turning it over to see what kind of damage has been done. Strangely, as I turn my arm to face me, I don't see the types of severe lacerations or bleeding that I was expecting. From the amount of pain I endured, I was sure that my arm would be in tatters. But it isn't. Instead, all that I can see are four numbers seared black into my lower wrist. Nine, two, nine, two. As I read them aloud to myself, I feel the pain diminishing, and my breathing begins to normalize. Within a few minutes, the pain ceases entirely, and I sit stunned, staring at my distasteful tattoo. No discoloration or swelling marks the spot, 
None of the regular signs one would find when carving flesh. It's as if it has always been a part of me. I raise my head and get to my feet, only to be startled again as a short thump sounds from behind me. I quickly turn around to discover the door has shut again and then becomes clear. Whatever plans I might have made before, whatever chances I might have missed, the only option left to me now is moving forward. There is still the knowledge that someone else has come before me, and there are surely more clues that will aid me in finding them. I have to keep my head and follow their trail. The path, now illuminated in that harsh red lighting, blazes bright enough for me to continue through the corridor. Details are complex to make out, but whatever these walls were designed for, they had been fashioned to look like an industrial complex, possibly military in design. I haven't been walking long when I am forced to stop. The path in front of me now forks in two directions. On the center wall, placed on a section that divides the paths, hangs a screen where words hover in LCD imaging. On the left side of its display, it shows an arrow with the word ANSWERS. On the right is the same arrow but the phrase reads, Escape. Stunned, I read the words over and over again, racked by a sense of horrible deja vu as I repeat them in my mind. Paralyzed by indecision, thoughts whirling with frustration, anger, and fear, while the ever-dwindling numbers displayed on my chest hold a constant sting of concern. What kind of sadistic game is this? These choices are so absurd they feel comical. How am I supposed to choose between options like this? I shut my eyes to think, trying to consider the possible consequences of this decision. Powerful dread begins welling up within me, amplified by the restless sense of deja vu that seems to be a constant on this journey. My choice will have to be made with my gut rather than through any logical deduction. I take a deep breath and cautiously step to the right, moving closer to a decision. I stop. Again, something has caught my eye. From the left side of the path, I see something odd glinting from the shadows. I hesitate for a moment and then move to examine what I've seen. Though difficult to spot in the dim lighting, there are words drawn clearly into the interior of the left side hallway. Scribbled in what looks like poorly faded ink, I study them for a few moments and decipher the lines. To whoever may come after, I seek the truth, and I pray it sets me free. Do not follow me. I lick one finger, wipe it against the wall, 
and taste it. My suspicions are proven correct when the coppery flavor hits my tongue. The fading brown text on the wall has been scrawled in blood. I briefly consider their warning, but my longing for answers and the thought of human connection easily sway my decision. I take one last glance at the timer, which is decreased by nearly 15 minutes, and I walk down the corridor to the left. This time, I expect it when the solid wall appears and quickly closes the gap behind me as I head down the first ten feet of the passage. I look back for only a moment as cold sweat forms on the back of my neck in question whether I have made a mistake. For what feels like an eternity, I make my way deeper down the path I've chosen until I can see the corridor begin to widen. Eventually, I step into a far nicer room than anything I've seen to this point. A gigantic monitor stands in the center of the room, surrounded by dozens of smaller computers and other displays, all protected by glass shields. As I approach, I notice one of them has a black disk sitting in an open drive. On it is a plain sticky note label. Dust is gathered on and around it, and it looks like it has sat there for a very long time. Standing above it now, I can see that written on the label itself are the words, Play me. I stare at it before almost unconsciously raising my hand to press it in, then stop before I do. My hand still hovering hesitantly in the air, I turn to look around the room. Monitors line almost every inch of the walls, and thick dust has settled on the floor, tables, and on the front of every screen in the room. No one has been in this room for a long time. Looking back to the disc in front of me, I carefully move my finger to the button by the tray and gently press it. The disc quickly sinks back into the machine, and I can hear its internals whirred life before a sound rings out that echoes through the chamber. Images flash across every display in the room. Pictures of a child, a woman, and a man. Scenes of them smiling and hugging, laughing and playing. The woman is beautiful and the little girl by her side brings tears to my eyes. But the man... I recognize the man in the reflection of the nearest display. I can see my face, the same face the man in the picture wears. This is my family. How have I forgotten? Their faces feel so familiar, and yet the sensation of recognition is there. But something about it is foreign. Something feels old. Suddenly, a voice cuts through my thoughts and grips my heart with fear. A man's voice that rings throughout the speakers. The blind leading the blind into eternal suffering. The fate I chose 
for you. I spin around, and the voice bounces from speaker to speaker within the room. Anger welling up inside me. I tremble with rage as I scream out. What have you done to me? Dear God! To my family! Where are they? The voice is silent, before in the same dull tone, it speaks again. I truly pity you. I created this suffering, and I deserve your hatred, every infinitesimal drop of it. My fists clench so hard that blood starts dripping to the floor. Hands Slick with my own weeping plasma, I am lost in my outrage and hardly notice the sting of the marks I've dug. The vague sensation of pain only serves to feed my anger, and I start shouting again, thrashing my hands about in a futile tantrum. I swear to God, if you've hurt them, I will fucking kill you! Again, the voice is silent a moment before it responds. I know my sympathy is worthless to you, and though I can do nothing to ease your torment, I can at least give you what you seek. The truth of things. From out of the ceiling, a long synthetic cord snakes its way downward faster than I can react and embeds itself into the back of my neck. My vision blurs. I become dizzy and fall to my knees as it works its way deeper into my cortex. I reach for something to steady myself, but my legs give way and I collapse. As if I am sinking into a hole, while a wretched umbral pitch clings to my limbs. The murk suddenly gives way and my mind is swiftly overwhelmed with the uncanny sensation of falling, gracelessly tumbling through the air until my ears start to ring. There's a pop and I'm staring at a new world through unfamiliar eyes. I cannot move. I cannot control any part of the being I am inhabiting. I seem to be a passenger watching events unfold through their eyes. I know almost immediately that I am driving. My hands are on the steering wheel, and I watch as I lift one and move it to flick a switch for my turn signal. The eyes stare ahead at the road for a few seconds before turning to the passenger in the front seat. And it is then that I recognize where I am. The woman, my wife, sits there. She speaks something that I cannot hear, and the eyes look into the rearview mirror to see my daughter sitting in the back seat. The child says something else I can't make out, but it makes the woman frown. 
I lift my hand and say something to her, which makes her nod and remove her seatbelt. She leans into the back, quickly undoes the girl's belt, and I can see her trying to fiddle with the girl's coat in the rearview mirror again. My mouth repeats something that makes her stop and look at me while I stare in the mirror. She is smiling. But as quickly as it comes, the smile vanishes and is twisted into a look of sheer terror. As my eyes refocus on the road, I see why traffic has stopped in front of us. I can sense my foot hitting the brake pedal incredibly fast, but at the distance we are, it hardly matters. Our vehicle careens into the back of the pickup truck in front of us, and I watch in horrifying slow motion as our wife and daughter soar through the air and crash straight through the windshield. I see glass tear at their faces, peeling skin from their bone, blood freely spilling in every direction as our vehicles contort. A shard of metal rips free from the back of the pickup. I watch in horror as it slowly gouges out the left eye of my wife and continues forward into the throat of my daughter. An explosion rocks my head backward, and I am mercifully knocked unconscious as the front airbag hits my face. Blackness engulfs me. I am sucked back into that pit, only to awaken again as a passenger. This time standing in a graveyard, staring at a priest as he silently finishes his sermon. Then watches helplessly as my family is lowered into the ground. Blackness again. This time, I come to a place that feels familiar in a lab of some kind. I'm standing at a computer, multiple monitors splayed out in front of me, and I watch as my fingers type on a keyboard deftly inputting complicated-looking equations. More images flash across the screens. Strings of numbers and code run across the monitor to the left, while pictures of blueprints and documents titled scenarios run simultaneously on the right. My hands work furiously at the keyboard for a few more moments when I catch a reflection in the center display. The door behind me slowly opens and a man quietly enters the room. My hands cease typing at the sight of him, and as we stare at one another, everything fades to black again. This time, I come to sitting at a table while a man is speaking to me. His face looks grave, and he places multiple papers in front of me and hands me a pen. I can see, as I reach for the pen, the papers all have the same insignia at the top and are all addressed with the same name. The Anima Project. As I sign them, I shift again. This time, I'm putting on a suit. The same one I awoke in and stepping into a vat filled with that gel-like blue liquid. I lay on my back, completely submerged, and watch the tank's lid slide over me before the blackness takes me. I feel its preternatural depths engulf me, and I tread the path 
that brought me here a second time. Violently pulled upwards through darkness as thick as heavy mist that feels like a soggy pitch wrapping around me. I surface, awakening in my natural body. Immediately, I feel the cord release from the back of my neck with a sickening crunch. The dreadful sound vibrates through my ears as the machine ejects, ripped out from between my vertebrae, tearing through any remaining cartilage. As I attempt to catch my breath, the voice in the speakers around me starts again. Plato once said about the soul that love calls back the halves of ourselves and tries to make one out of two, knitting and healing the wounds of our natures. What then can we do when one half of that soul dies? Gathering my senses, I lash out, screaming back at it, God, how long have you kept me here? What is the Anima Project? You son of a bitch. What have you done to me? The voice continues as if I hadn't spoken. Veritas est anima mea. Truth of the soul. That is the reason all of this exists. Project Anima exists as a means to discover how closely connected the flesh is to the soul. I try to yell, to voice my anger and dismay again, but something catches in my throat and I fall to my knees. I am suddenly gasping for breath while the voice continues unperturbed. It was my project from the beginning. We had perfected methods to create exact replicas of flesh, but sought the means to transfer a soul. My final contribution was to create a test, a method of determining perfect conversion. A simple choice that would dictate how much comprehension was transferred from host to host to gather the necessary data. Everything has started spinning, and the voice sounds like it is coming from every direction at once. It is all I can do to keep myself from falling to the ground while I listen. My soul was torn asunder the moment my family died. I am nothing but a hollow carapace now, with no fight left in me. It seems only fitting then as its creator that I volunteer to be the project's first test subject. They will wipe all memories of having created it, working on the test and of anything related to Project Anima. I can no longer stay on my feet. My legs buckle and I crash to the floor hard. I struggle to my side with immense difficulty and through my anguish. I catch sight of the red display lights. Even with my weakening vision, I can see the terrifying image of four blinking 
zeros. While I stare in horror, I can hear the distant sound of the ever-present voice continuing. The plan is to awaken with only my civilian memories intact, and while I suffer the anxiety of the unknown, I must make choice. If I choose poorly, I will be killed, and the test will start again. If I choose to do nothing, a timer will be set off and I will be killed as well. They hope that through numerous deaths, I will develop latent memories that should act like instinct and keep me from the wrong decisions. Should this come to pass, it would show a possibility for connection to the soul without any interference. For my part, I no longer truly care about the outcome. I try to stand but fall, landing on my back. I can do nothing but lay here and stare at the ceiling. I watch as it begins to move slowly at first and then with slightly more speed. It takes a moment before it dawns on me that it's not the ceiling that's moving. Something has taken hold of me and is lifting me off the floor, carrying me. I can no longer struggle. I can do nothing but slowly turn my head as I lay limply in the thing's grasp. I watch with mild interest as I am carried past the rooms and corridors I had only recently traversed, all the while hearing that goddamn voice still talking. We are in the complex I created, which exists deep underground, and I designed the program to be entirely automated and self-sufficient. Any interaction is done through robotic appendages and the like. I made sure it will continue until the desired outcome is achieved. It will never stop, but if it fails... I will eventually regress to something only vaguely human. A shell of what once was. Memories will fade with every renewal until there is nothing left except hazy images and blurry recollections. I recorded this message before the procedure and said it as my only request that they give you the option of listening to it. I must sign off now. The vat is calling. I have doomed you and the countless others who have come before and will come after. To eternal suffering, you do not understand. Please forgive me because I cannot forgive myself. As the recording ends, I am hardly given time to think before my ragged breaths become racked with coughs. I feel my body shake with each tremor as I reach a hand to my mouth. And when I pull it away, it's covered in blood. Passing a familiar room, I can make out the bold letters I saw earlier. Veritas est anima mea. Inscribed upon the door as I'm carried by it. Then, 
as suddenly as it began. My ride ends. Dragged back to the start of my journey, I'm tossed efficiently and carelessly onto a thing that is rigid and smells terrible. I use the last of my strength to turn my head, trying to see what brought me back here. I only catch a glimpse of a metallic form as it exits the room. But what I see, much more is far worse. Something that brings my brutal nightmare into perspective as I realize I now lay on a pile of corpses waiting to die. I see the body lying beside me, so fresh it can't be more than a few hours old. As I look into its opal white eyes, it is as if I've stared into a mirror. But worse than that, far worse than that is the series of four numbers I can see emblazoned on its wrist. Numbers that read 9291. I hope you enjoyed The Anima Project, as written by Josh Morelli and voiced by Jesse Cornett. As a reminder, you can hear more of Jesse Cornett on our official YouTube channel, where he's been voicing stories for us since he first performed the creepypasta story Ability way back in September of 2013. You can also catch more of his production and sound design work, as well as his performances, over at the ever-amazing No Sleep Podcast. If you check him out, be sure to give his performances a thumbs up, leave a kind word, and let him know you heard him here on this program. And, of course, that Jason sent you. That would also mean a lot to me. Oh, and don't forget to check out more of me, Jason Hill, over in my neck of the woods at the Horror Hill Podcast, Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, our YouTube channel, and wherever podcasts can be found. Or at simplyscarypodcast.com. I've got four seasons of my own for you to sink your teeth into. But be careful. Some of my tales might just bite back. <laughs> and with that, listeners... Our weekly descent into the depths has just come to a close. But before we go, I'd like to take a moment to thank you for joining us for tonight's episode and remind you to take a moment to stop by our iTunes page and leave Chilling Tales for Dark Nights a five-star review and a kind word. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, if you haven't already. And, of course, subscribe to us on YouTube where you can find an archive of our work going back to 2012. And consider signing up as a patron at our website, ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com, to show your support and get all of our content ad-free. I'm your host, Jason Hill, and it's been a pleasure. Tune in again next week when we once again turn off the lights 
and turn on the dark. Sweet dreams, listener. Sweet dreams. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, a production of Chilling Entertainment, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted by yours truly, Steve Taylor. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering by executive producer and director Craig Roshek. Logo by Craig Roshek. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? We take submissions. Email it to us today at submissions at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. If you enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave us a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to us. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew each and every week. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. We'll be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.